Heavenly Father, we want to thank you tonight, Lord, and and praise you, Father, for all the goodness that uh, that you just that you just flood into our lives, Father. We thank you for for the physical health that you give us. We we thank you, Lord, for the spiritual blessings that we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Father, we thank you that not only have you saved us, Lord, but you've you've raised us up with our Lord Jesus and and seated us together in heavenly places in him and you've just abounded toward us in in unimaginable ways and and blessings by your grace, Father, and we thank you for that. And we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray, Father, that you would teach us tonight and give us, give us good understanding, Father, that we might be equipped with truth and with the power that comes from believing your word, that we might live lives that glorify you. And Lord, we thank you for all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, Hosea and chapter 8. We've been talking, uh, going through the first couple of verses so far of Romans chapter 13. And when we left off last week, we kind of ran out of time. And I was going to spend a little bit of time talking about exceptions to the rule of Romans 13. Romans 13, Paul says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. Uh, The powers that be are ordained of God. And there, there there may be no other truth in Scripture that is... uh, where it is so self-evident that there are exceptions to the general rule. And so I'd like to look at those because we've been talking for the last couple of weeks about, you know, submit, submit, submit. Do what the government tells you to do. And um, there are, of course, times when we wouldn't do that. And here in Hosea chapter 8, there is a verse here that I wanted to start us out with because this verse appears to actually be an exception to Paul's overall statement that the powers that be are ordained of God and that there is no power but of God. Paul says that. It's true. We know it to be true. Here in Hosea chapter 8, and one verse, verse 4, God says, they have set up kings, but not by me. They have made princes, and I knew it not. Of their silver and their gold have they made them idols, that they may be cut off. So here, God says, there are powers, Israel raised up kings, that weren't of God. And princes that, uh, that he didn't know. So, how, how do we reconcile those two things? Are the powers that be ordained of God? Or are there some powers that are not set up by God? Well, if you'll come with me, come back to uh, 1 Samuel, and let's get a look at what, uh, at what Hosea is talking about there. 1 Samuel in chapter 8 We understand that God permits certain things that are not necessarily uh, according to His direct 
will. And he works through those things nevertheless, even though they are not according to his uh, revealed will. He works through those things to work out his purpose regardless. And that's what you've got here in this situation. God didn't want Israel to have kings. As a matter of fact, 1 Samuel and chapter 8 says, And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now this is the time of the judges. There is no king in Israel yet. They're ruled by judges that God raises up. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes, and perverted judgment. So these sons of Samuel were, uh, were not at all, they didn't uh, take after their father at all. They were crooked. They were crooked politicians. They were uh, uh, crooked rulers. They were taking bribes. Uh, lucre there is the same idea of taking bribes, doing what they did for money. And perverted judgment. If you were guilty, they'd let you go if you, if you, you know, slipped them a little something under the table. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel unto Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old. I love that. <laughs> Behold, thou art, look, you're old. That's what they're saying. Look, you're old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. You notice it didn't displease Samuel when they badmouthed his sons. It was that they wanted a king. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. So God, uh, in this rejection of Himself by His people, He allows and even tells Samuel, instructs him to do what they say. They want a king over themselves? Give them a king. So now here is a situation that we just saw uh, in our in our leading verse, where they set up kings over themselves that God didn't didn't want, and yet we've been seeing over the last two weeks that once that king is set up, he is the Lord's anointed. And David, even though uh, Saul chased him to the ends of the earth for no uh, good reason, wouldn't lay a hand on Saul because he was the Lord's anointed. So you've got a situation here where you want to notice, uh, too, when God says they're rejecting me, well, who are they rejecting? Who are the human powers that they're rejecting? Well, they're these guys who are taking bribes and perverting judgment, these crooked politicians. And these guys go, well, look at these crooks. We don't need to be subject to them. And God says, you're rejecting me. 
So, and this is what we've been talking about for these last two weeks. It doesn't. It, what the what the person the person in power, his behavior has nothing to do with his position. Nothing. If God wants to take him out of his position for his uh, behavior or for whatever reason God wants to do that, God can do that. But as far as you and I are concerned, it's the seat. It's not the person. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, Jesus said. Therefore, whatever they say unto you, do it. Don't do what they do because they were the most wicked generation that ever lived. All the blood from Abel on up down through was laid on their hands. They killed the Son of God. And yet, they sat in that seat. And the seat is, is the... Uh, is the point, the place of power. When a man ascends to that seat, we are called to submit. Okay, so on the one hand, God says, I didn't set this king up. This king, these kings that these people are setting up, that's, that didn't come from me. On the, and we just saw that. They rejected God for their sake of their kings. On the, by the same token... He tells Samuel, go ahead and do it. And once he does that, then that that king becomes uh, God's anointed. Samuel literally pours oil on his head and anoints him down through through the passage there. So, So that's an exception, or at least a, a partial exception. Does God, is God responsible for all the powers that be? Well, yes, and no. Was he responsible for the for the corruption of uh, Samuel's sons? No. But did he establish them? Did they have that seat of power regardless of their behavior? Yes. And when the people rejected those crooks, they were rejecting God. Okay, now, so we ask the question, well then is it ever okay? Is it ever okay to disobey God? governmental authorities? And the answer is, yes, it is. There are exceptions to the rule, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. And uh, those exceptions, if you'll uh, take a look with me in Daniel, we we can jump all over the place and find exceptions, but very conveniently for us, there are a few of them right here in the book of Daniel. And I think that they will suffice and we won't have to get a lot of paper cuts on our fingers we'll just hang out in Daniel for a little bit Ezekiel Daniel just before where we were in Hosea Daniel we're going to start out in chapter 1 now Daniel we understand where we are in the book of Daniel Daniel is a, a Hebrew child along with other Hebrew children that are carried away captive into Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar went in and uh, carried away Israel captive, Daniel is among those uh, uh, that were were carried away, and he's a child. And the king has uh, special designs for, um, for the best and the brightest of the children. He wants to bring them up in his culture and his language, and and and, uh, and and he wants to pull the best and brightest. And 
train them up in the ways of, of Babylon for his own kingdom. So Daniel chapter 1, and uh, just to get, the, uh, get a little bit of a context here, look in verse 5. Talking about the children in verse 4, in whom was no blemish, verse 5, the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. So Nebuchadnezzar's got these kids. He picks the uh, the children in whom is no blemish and the best and the brightest, and he and he puts them away for three years, and he's going to feed them. He's going to feed them good. He's going to feed them with the king's meat and the king's drink and so forth. And they're gonna uh, they're gonna spend three years. Now three years is the is how long it takes to get an education in the Bible, right? The Lord was with the disciples for three years and, uh, and taught them. Paul uh, spent uh, three years in, in Arabia and the Lord you know, got him all, all set up in what he needed to do and so forth. So three years, they're going to they're gonna teach him all that they want to teach him. Now the problem with that is that the king's meat is offered to idols because this is a pagan king and, and, and Babylon has got, their, has got their other gods and so forth. And Daniel and the boys, they've got a problem with that eating meat offered to idols. So pick up verse 8. Is the door locked? Yes. Who's, somebody's uh, wandering out there. Verse 8. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel, they've got an order now from the king that they're supposed to eat this meat, and Daniel doesn't want to do it. Now, notice what Daniel does here, rather what he doesn't do. Daniel doesn't stomp his foot and say, I am not going to eat this meat. He, he goes to the, uh, to the powers that be, and he requests. Now, Daniel has no intention of eating this meat, okay? But he goes and he requests uh, that he... Be be um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, exempted. And uh, and God now God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. We're in Daniel chapter one there about. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed your meat and your drink. For why should he see your faces worse liking than the children which are uh, of your sort? Then shall he make me endanger ye make me endanger my head to the king. So the 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 prince of the eunuchs, it says that God brought Daniel into favor with him. Now, how do you suppose Daniel, God brought Daniel into favor with him? I would imagine the same way that Joseph came into favor with, with his captors, not by you know jumping up and down and demanding their rights and talking about what a great injustice this is that I'm here, but by submitting to them and, uh, and doing what they, uh, being faithful in what they called them to do. Up to the point that they ask you or require you to do something contrary to the law or the revelation of God. 
And that's what they're doing here. They're calling on Daniel and requiring him to eat meat offered to idols, and he's not going to do it. He's not going to defile himself. So he requests, he makes that request. And the prince of the eunuchs says, look, you're going to get me in trouble. You're, you're, you're going to cost me my head if I, don't, if I don't give you this. The king ordered me to. So Daniel, as the passage goes down, and we won't take the time to read it or we're going to run out of time, Daniel says, give, give us pulse, he says, to eat. Come back in ten days, and if we don't look better, and our faces aren't fatter and shininger than, than uh, all of these other kids, well then do what you, what you see fit. And the guy says, okay. So ten days later, he comes back, and um, the... Uh, uh, Verse 15, At the end of ten days their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. And thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse. So Daniel here uh, is able to maintain his integrity to obey God. He does not submit himself to Nebuchadnezzar. But he does it in such a way, uh, he does it in, with a submissive spirit. So he's submitting while he's not submitting. Okay, now that's one instance. So the, the, the spirit is still there. That spirit that Paul calls us to, to submit. So even if I find myself in a situation where a governmental authority is, is requiring me to do something against uh, the, the Word of God, it is for me to not do that thing, but to not do it in such a way, if possible, that I can, I'm not going to violate the Word of God, on the one hand, whatever it is He's telling me to do, but on the other hand, I've got a, a, a revelation from God that says to submit. So I don't want to violate that either. You don't want to violate the one so that you can obey the other. So you, so you take a posture of uh, submissive non-subjection. And that's exactly what Daniel is doing here. And very wisely and prudently. Now, sometimes, turn over to chapter 3, you can't do that. Sometimes you just got to go, look, it ain't happening. I'm just, I'm just not going to do what you're telling me to do. Like here in chapter 3, with Daniel's uh, two buddies, or three buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and chapter 3 and verse uh, 4, Nebuchadnezzar sets up this image. And then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, those are all musical instruments, you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. So that's the command now. Governmental authority telling you, telling these three boys, uh, Daniel's off somewhere else at this point apparently, that you need to bow down and worship this idol. Absolute, uh, no question about it, disobedience and violation of the law of God if they were to submit. So what do they do? Um, look at verse 
grab verse 13. They Now the boys refuse. They don't do it. Someone comes and tells the king, hey, there's three Jewish, Jewish kids over here who aren't obeying your commandment. Verse 13, Then Nebuchadnezzar in his rage and fury commanded to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then they brought these men before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar spake and said unto them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Do not you serve my gods nor worship the golden image which I have set up? Now if you be ready that at what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, when you fall down and worship the image, you know, it's interesting to me that music is used here to induce worship. Uh, just a little side note. I think that works on, uh, on all different ends of the spectrum. Um, you fall down and you worship the image which I have made well. If you do do what I'm telling you to do and everything will be fine. But if you worship not, you shall be cast the same hour into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands? Now watch their response. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We don't need to think about this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. So that's a pretty... That, that's, I mean, you're talking direct, ab, absolute defiance there. They're basically saying, look, number one, the God who you think isn't as strong as you are is, and He can deliver us, and in fact, He will deliver us. But even if He didn't, we're not, we're not bowing to your, to your image. Do to us what you will. And He does. And He throws them into the fiery furnace, and we know the account. He looks in there, and He says... Uh, didn't I just throw three people in that fiery furnace? How come there's four of them uh, walking around and they're not bound like we bound them and the, and the fire's not hurting them and the fourth one looks like the Son of God? How did he know that? How did he, know that? He, looked, he looked like the Son of God. Yeah. Uh, he was shiny. <laughs> Emanating light, I would imagine, uh, uh, above the flames. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And he goes right, and he and he goes uh, after that, pulls them out, calls them out, and uh, and sends out a decree that their God, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, ought to be regarded and to be worshipped. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Daniel and and them uh, before in chapter one. Bring glory to God by not submitting. Daniel did it in kind of in, in a little bit more of a diplomatic way, and actually they were all the, these three were there too in chapter one. And you see kind of more of a diplomatic approach in chapter one. In chapter two, there's really no room for diplomacy here. They don't have the advantage that they had back in chapter one, where the guy that they answered to uh, took a liking to him. 
And they were able to say, hey, you know, let's work this out. Nebuchadnezzar is in rage and fury, and, uh, and they've got no choice but to just say, look, we're not doing it. We're just not doing it. And, uh, you know, God help us to, to have that kind of faith and, and courage should we find ourselves uh, in, a, in a similar situation to say uh, we, will not, we will not bow. We will not bow and, and uh, come what may. Yes, sir. Yeah, well, um, I guess it, well, it depends. You're obviously assuming that the person would have a problem with working on Sunday. Um, well, I'll tell you what. Let's get the next, let's get the next example because I think it, because I think it may apply because what you're talking about is not necessarily a direct command from God because the Sabbath is not, you know, the idea of not working on the Sabbath is, is, doesn't apply to us, uh, today at least directly but people do have a conscience issue about uh, working on what they call the Lord's Day uh, working on Sunday and they think that that should be devoted to the Lord so what do you do about that what if it's not a direct command from God you could probably do what they're telling you to do but your conscience would be would be defiled come over to chapter 6 Daniel chapter 6, we all know the, the famous account of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, why did Daniel go into the lion's den? Well, Daniel chapter 6, verse, um, uh, pick up verse 7. Daniel is the chief of the uh, uh, presidents here, and the other presidents don't like it. So verse 7, all the presidents of the kingdom and the governors and the princes and the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute. Now they're talking to the king. And to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for thirty days save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. So they get they all get together. Now what they're trying to do is they're trying to trap Daniel. Uh, they're trying to get him in some kind of trouble. And you'll notice if you uh, if you back up to verse four and you want to take note of this. Then the presidents and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault, for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. So Daniel is absolutely submitting himself to this heathen uh, government that he finds himself in, usurper of, uh, of God's uh, power on, on the earth and so forth, all kind of reasons for Daniel to just spend his life in rebellion against this, uh, against this foreign invader. He didn't do that. He did what Joseph did. He did what all of these people that we've been looking at over these last couple of weeks did. He was faithful in the situation that he found himself. So so much so that they couldn't find an occasion against him at all. He did everything that the government was telling him to do up until this point. 
So they all get together and they come up, they devise this scheme. They, they said, uh, verse 5, then said the three men, we shall not find any occasion against Daniel except it be against him concerning the law of his God. See, so they know the only way that Daniel is going to disobey the government is if the government tells him to disobey God. So they come up with this scheme and they come to the king and they say, King, here's our idea. For 30 days, we want you to pass a law that says that no one can pray to any god or ask anything of any uh, ruler except you. And of course, the king likes that because it feeds his pride and it says, yeah, okay. And, uh, and he agrees. And he passes the law. He outlaws prayer for 30 days. Now, O king, verse 8, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians which altereth not. Once you write a law under this constitution of the Medes and Persians, even the king can't change it. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house, his windows being open, in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled down upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. So Daniel, knowing that, that this was the law, no ignorance of the law here, he knew exactly what he was doing, goes back into his house, doesn't go in secret in a closet somewhere, throws open his windows toward Jerusalem like he always did. He wasn't making a special point of protest here. He was just continuing on uh, as he had always done. And he prays three times a day toward Jerusalem. Now, obviously again, now here, you don't have any diplomacy. You don't have any, uh, uh, you know, in your face, kind of like, like we just saw with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Here, Daniel just, without a lot of fanfare, without a lot of, uh, you know, pomp and, and, and protest, just goes on living his godly life the way that he always did, even when part of it was against the law. Now, Daniel, nor any child of Israel, was ever commanded, you must pray three times a day toward Jerusalem. If Daniel didn't pray three times a day toward Jerusalem, it wouldn't have been a violation of any direct command from God. So why did he do it? Well, come back with me to 1 Kings and chapter 8. Let's see why, why he was doing what he was doing. 1 Kings chapter 8. For Daniel, this was an issue of conscience. The praying three times a day comes out of uh, comes out of a psalm of David, where he says, "I will uh, bring my supplication before you in the morning, and uh, and in the evening, and 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 as I lay on my bed at night." And that became a uh, kind of a cultural uh, tradition for the Jews. From that, you know, a tradition based, you know, on a, on a good solid foundation out of that Davidic psalm. But it was never commanded. Um, 
praying toward Jerusalem comes out of this passage here. First Kings chapter 8, Solomon has, has built the temple and this is the dedica- dedicatory prayer or part of it. We can pick it up in verse um, 44. Solomon is praying before the completed temple, <clears throat> praying to God. If thy people, Solomon prays, go out to battle against their enemy, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto the Lord toward this city, which thou hast chosen, and toward the house that I have built for thy name, hear thou, uh, then hear thou in heaven their prayer and their supplication, and maintain their cause. And if they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives into the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whether they were carried captives, and repent and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned and have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies which led them away captive and pray unto thee toward this land which thou gavest unto their fathers the city which thou hast chosen and the house which I have built for thy name then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven thy dwelling place and maintain their cause. So that's why Daniel is praying three times a day with his window open toward toward Israel, toward Jerusalem, toward that temple. Because, uh, Because this is the prayer that God inspired Solomon to pray. When you get carried away captive into a foreign land, this if you want deliverance for your nation, here's what you do. Now again, there's no commandment there. It just says, when they do this, Lord... Hear them. So this is strictly a matter of conscience for for Daniel. It, it, it so so now we're getting into a little bit of a gray area here. Working on Sunday, um, what uh, what do I do? Well, for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I'd imagine that they would have felt very much the same way and probably did very much the same thing, but maybe one of them didn't. Maybe one of them thought it's more important here. We don't have a direct command. 30 days. It's more important here to submit to the government. Now, they probably would have been wrong. I think uh, you know Daniel was, was correct, and I think it, you see that from the fact that the Lord shut the lion's mouths, and, and, uh, and like the boys walked out of the fire, he walked out of the lion's den. But this was purely a matter of conscience for Daniel. Yes, sir. I was also thinking about when you were asked to go to war, you know, I mean, these people you're going to fight against, I mean, one minute they're your fellow man, the next minute they're your enemy, considered by our government to be your enemy. Mm-hmm. You know, thou shalt not kill. You know, five years later, they might be your fellow man, they you've already killed this guy mm-hmm. in battle. Yeah, war, going to war is another. Uh, a contentious issue among Christians, a contentious issue, go to war over it. Um, and like you said, there are conscientious objectors. Now, for myself personally, um, I believe that, that 
going to war in sub, in submission to your to your government is perfectly uh, a, a good and right thing to do. I don't have uh, any reason to believe that God would be angry at a Christian for going to war when his country went to war. On the other hand, I you know Paul says judge nothing before the time. And if somebody's conscience uh, forbids them, and, and that is their conscience toward God, and and they have uh, they have searched themselves, and they're you know as convinced as a human being can be that this is not a matter of me just not wanting to get killed, and it's not a matter of fear, and it's not a matter of uh, just not wanting to go. But I truly believe that God does not want uh, want us to do this. Then. Um, then he's then the Lord is gonna is gonna flesh all of that out at the judgment seat, and I would uh, venture to say that that the judgment of one person who does that may be very different from the judgment of another person who does that, depending on what was in that person's heart. When you're talking about issues of conscience, that's exactly what you're talking about. Uh, if it's not a gray area. Well, then, you know, God's going to say, look, I told you what to do, and you, for conscience sake, did something else. Well, you were disobedient, and that's just all there is to it. Um, but in, in a lot of these areas, uh, like this one here, you know, did Daniel do the right thing by refusing to submit? Would it have been better had he not prayed three times a day? I don't believe so, but his conscience told him what to do, and that's what he did, and he was vindicated by God in the lion's den. So all of these things are um, are exceptions to what we've been talking about in Romans chapter 13. Now come with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 4. These are the verses that everyone points to when you talk about the exceptions. Acts chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I'd like to point out to you that nowhere in Romans chapter 13 does Paul say, look, of course there are exceptions. Paul says, let every soul be subject unto the higher powers. For the powers that be are ordained of God. There is no power but of God. Therefore, we must be subject. And if you resist... He that resisteth the power resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that we resist will receive to themselves damnation. And he goes on and he says, pay your taxes too. And, there, and there's never throughout that whole passage any inkling or suggestion that there's an exception to that rule. Neither is there any statement of exception in any of these passages that passages we've been looking at. We looked at Peter and what he had to say about it. We looked at Jude and what he had to say about it. We've looked through. We've looked at several passages throughout the whole Bible. Never, when the doctrine is laid out, does it come with a caveat. Ever, never does it say except when they command you to disobey God. It never says that. We, we derive that from passages like the ones we're looking at, not where you have instruction that says submit unless, but where you have examples 
of people who defy government for conscience toward God. And then we look at that and we say, oh, okay, well, you know, that would be an exception. But not because we're told it, that there's an exception, but because we're shown it. And there's a, and there's a reason for that. The, the thing about this particular instance in the Scripture, and it's important to, to understand this, there's a lot of things in life where the exception proves the rule. You ever hear about that? You ever hear that? The exception proves the rule. This is one of them. The exceptions that we're looking at are when people don't submit to the government because they are submitting to a higher power, to, the, to God. That's the exception. So the exception to submission is submission. But not only in this, in this particular instance, there's a very unusual kind of phenomena that happens here. Because it's not only that the exception proves the rule, but it's that the rule demands the exception. Let me tell you what I mean. The basis for our submission to human government, the whole point of it and basis and the reason we're called to do it is that the powers that be are ordained of God. So it's not the person or even the seat, ultimately, that we submit to. It's God that we're submitting to when we submit to governmental authorities. Knowing that... That's the doctrine, that's the rule, that's the statement we're given. There's no need for an exception. For Paul to say, submit to the higher powers because they're derived from God, unless they tell you to disobey God, would be redundant. Because when you submit to the higher powers, you're submitting to God. That's the whole point. So obviously... If they tell you to do something contrary to God, that's not an exception for us. It's just a further following of the rule. What Daniel's doing is not an exception. He submitted to Nebuchadnezzar in conscience toward God. He defied the, the, uh, the decrees of the king in conscience toward God. It's all part of the same rule. So the exceptions are actually not exceptions because this is all about submission to God. It's all about submission to God. And that we need to understand that. We, we get that from the exceptions, but then we draw from that in the rule. And we understand that this man, who may be just as corrupt and filthy as anybody I've ever seen, derives his power from God. And for me to resist him is for me to resist God. That's the whole rule to start with. So the only time that I would resist him is if he tells me to resist God who I'm submitting to in the first place. Yes, ma'am. As unto the Lord. Absolutely. And, and the husband, it's, that speaks nothing about his behavior or his character or, or anything. The, the exception would be if he tells you to do something that's contrary to the Word of God. Absolutely. So, I, I, I want to make sure and point that out to you because 
things like like I said in the beginning, there is probably no other truth in the Word of God that that is more that it's more evident that there are exceptions to the rule than this, what we're talking about here. Do what the government tells you. The first thing is, well, what if they tell me? (laughs) And the exceptions come up. But what I'd like for you to see is that these exceptions are really not exceptions because it's all about submitting to God. That's the rule. And it's the rule you follow when you submit to Him, to that governmental authority, and it's the rule you follow when you defy Him preferring to obey God. It's the same rule. You're submitting to God. Yes, sir. Okay. Okay. Well, praise the Lord. See, and, and you, you handled that much the way Daniel did in chapter 1 there. Uh, be diplomatic and, and take that spirit of, look, you're the boss. I understand that, but is there something we can do here? Can we work this out? Because my conscience tells me that I ought not be working Sunday. And, you, and the Lord worked it out for you. That's beautiful. Perfect example. Acts chapter 4. Uh, Peter and the rest are taken into prison. Let's just look at these verses real quick here. Acts chapter 4, and they, verse 18, they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said unto them, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So there you go. And that's the issue. Is it, whether it be right in the sight of God for us to hearken to you more than God, Peter doesn't even say no. He says, you judge. You tell me. And that's what I mean when I say that the exceptions to this rule are kind of self-evident. You know, Figure it out for yourself. I mean, you know, let's not be uh, silly. It's uh, this is about submitting to God, and if the power that be tells you not to, then you don't. Uh, one page over in chapter five, one more similar situation, just to give you the verse. Chapter five, verse uh, twenty-eight. They're in again, in trouble again, and they came and they. Uh, Asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. So, there you go again. So that was Peter's stand. Now, Peter, who told you that, that these people who, do, who defy governments are filthy dreamers and, and brute beasts and, and all of that nasty stuff he had to say over there in, uh, in his epistles. When it comes to deciding between men or God, the, the, there's no question. We will not bow. We will not bow to your idol. Throw us in the fire if, if you have to. I'm over my time.